Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day, Stephen. How are things going for you this week? Just fine. You know, it dawned on me that this is the season where we have four professional sports all going on at the same time. NFL, MLB, NHL, and the NBA. And of course, I should ask you about those Astros before we start. <laughs> well, as people do know, as I've, I haven't mentioned it recently, or at least I don't think I had, but I am from Texas and I do have to shout out with a giant go Astros for the World Series. Yeah, that was good entertainment. It, it was indeed, and I think it's going to continue to be. It's always fun when two of the best teams end up as the final teams in, in any league, because you do get to see them at their best in a great season. And, you know, the, this week's games have been another sign of of why that works out well for the players and the fans. Yeah, prolific number of home runs and a matchup with the team with the most potent offense, that being the Astros and, of course, the Dodgers, who have traditionally had a real stout pitching staff, and they had to deplete or really go through a, a lot of pitchers last night. That was amazing. Seven or eight pitchers, I think. It was. It really goes to show the, the strategy of coaching uh, comes to the front, which sometimes you don't see as much, or it doesn't. You don't appear to see it as much in baseball as, as for example, when you're watching you know, basketball and football. There's a lot of television shots on the coach, and you see the the player shuffles, and and many times they're calling the plays. You don't see it as much in baseball, but you do when they run out of pitchers. Yeah, that's true. Hey, so what are we doing talking about sports? This is a legal talk show, right? Well, it is a legal talk show, but. You know, I thought it might be interesting to talk about sports this week because what we see paralleling these seasons is are issues periodically that come to the news related to player suspensions and player fines. And we've never done a show on that, but I thought you know, it might be interesting to look at what are the systems, almost the the legal, quote unquote, you know, I've got air quotes, people can't see it on radio, but my Air quotes, the legal system that allows leagues to issue what appear to be judicial-like proceedings or to to undertake judicial-like proceedings and then issue decisions that are fines and suspensions, right? So I thought maybe let's talk about the underlying system of professional sports that allow them to do that. Yeah, no, that's a good good idea, Mitch. And we've talked about the issue of monetary fines, of course, within the context of tort law or civil liability, and uh, these same issues arise within uh, organized sports or what you had just called league sports. The other thing that I'd add is that the individual sports uh, also give rise to fines. Of course, I think of tennis right away, 
and the governing bodies that uh, govern over tennis, the International Tennis Federation, the Association of Tennis Professionals, and the United States Tennis Association. And uh, many tennis players have received fines. Uh, most of the ones that get pressed are the grand slams where there's conduct unbecoming or unsportsmanship-like conduct. And uh, there's a lot of legal issues rooted in uh, the, the issuing of fines. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little about what's the origin of that because on on one hand, they could come to uh, let's say in, in the example where, uh, for example, the NBA, the NBA, a disproportionate number of the fines for a period of time there were players actually interacting with fans, and there were a couple of very notorious cases where a player left the court, went into the stands, and had a physical altercation with a fan, and and sometimes it would be in a setting that would be perfectly justifiable. So a fan throws something at a player and, and actually strikes them, so a couple of times it were drinks, the most likely thing. Maybe there was adult beverages involved, but you know they throw a drink or they throw a, a piece of trash and hit a player. Uh, the player comes back and retaliates. So, I mean, that's not unlike the type of a physical setting or altercation that might happen outside of a game. But in addition to the possibility of there being criminal issues, the league steps in. So let's start with that discussion, Stephen, of, of the issue of there's the league, so that's a professional organization. It's a corporation in, in every case where it's a, a organization of owners of the team, right? So we think of the league, but it really it's a membership organization in every case that's a group of owners, right? Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And along with that comes uh, contractual obligations that run from league to owner, to player. So they are all uh, likely or potentially uh, parties to a contract. And many times the terms of the contract address the issue of uh, what I'll loosely call conduct unbecoming and sportsmanship-like clauses. That's right. And then on the player side, which is something that we I think we hear about, but I don't think we always pay a lot of attention to it. There are player associations. So what are those? Well, it's not a social club. It may sound like one, but it's not. <laughs> so player associations are unions. So going back to the, some of the earliest days of, the, of professional sports, the players felt that they had an uneven bargaining relationship with the owners and in the earliest days of professional sports that was absolutely true the the teams owned those players and not in the sense of of when we have you know the history we talk about slavery of people owning people but they own the contracts with those players and under those contracts it was almost what you talked about last week these contracts of adhesion one of my favorite terms but all the power was with the owners. If the player didn't sign, there wasn't somewhere else they could go and play. So out of that came uh, player unions, and they now have very powerful negotiating terms 
to even the playing field between the owner groups. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And I think if you look at the origin of the player unions, I think that is an outgrowth uh, for the need or representative of the need for there to be bargaining units and somebody to step up on the player's behalf. So what you have, and you, you mentioned it, what we now have is a system of contracts, right? So this entire system of justice, let's talk sports justice, coin that phrase for today's topic, is generated and created and defined by a series of contracts. These are contracts between and among the owners as part of the league, in this case, and then contracts between and among the players who join a union, and then contracts between the union and the owners. So there, there you have kind of the triumvirate of what creates the context of how the system is created. So with, with that, and within that, then there are actually like rules of procedure, right? Now this kind of gets boring until it becomes a huge issue with millions of dollars in play. But each of those player unions negotiate with the owners groups two things. They, they negotiate what you talked about, which are codes of conduct for the players and the teams for that matter as well. But they, they negotiate terms of conduct. And those are not unlike civil and criminal rules of procedure and criminal law. Yeah, decorum, general rules of decorum. Yeah, and, and in the case of, of most of the t- uh, leagues, although each of them have their own way, uh, and sometimes there's just a schedule of fines. You know, no, not unlike that if you're pulled over speeding, going 20 miles over the speed limit, there's a schedule of fines so that every single person who has that happen to them pays the same fine. No different, for example, in the NFL. So there are, there's a chart that you can look up on the internet that will tell you how much every single infraction is worth. And then the, the league has an individual, monitors that, and it ultimately the commissioner of each league has the authority to then issue fines related to that chart fines. Yeah, so there's uh, a, a session by which the parties come together to discuss and provide input on sort of a standard for the fines. Is that, is that what you're saying? So that's right. A certain, so a certain, um, certain conduct could warrant a fine in X amount of dollars kind of a thing. So there's some, no, that's actually a notice issue, I think, right? That's exactly right. So they, they know that if they do certain things, uh, you know, uh, roughing the passer uh, and get where there's a technical fine thrown because it's something beyond just the penalty on the field. So it's usually, it's a, it's, it's conduct beyond just the normal penalties of the game. Uh, And so in, in both the NBA and the NFL, those are when you get a technical penalty and that's an excessive behavior penalty and in every single case, there's going to be a monetary fine in addition to the, the whatever the penalty is given on the court or on the field. And the league issues that. So what comes up then, and what you mentioned was there's a process. Let's talk a little about arbitration. Another thing we don't talk 
much about on this show, and yet it has a huge role in organizations like this. Within these contracts, just as you said, Stephen, the commissioner will issue a fine or a suspension based on the, the nature of the, the behavior. And then there's the player can opt to go to arbitration where both parties come and negotiate whether they think it was a fair administration under the rules or not. And that's no different than arbitration that you would be involved in as a civil attorney, right, Steve? Yeah, no, that's right. So there's two systems that would provide an opportunity that's much different than the formal setting of a courtroom. Um, arbitration would be a setting whereby an arbiter would preside over a matter. And uh, usually there's clauses that relate to either binding or non-binding arbitration. Binding would mean that the parties are bound by the result or the ruling. And then um, by contrast or comparison, mediation, which is a topic we've talked about within the context of contract law, is a little bit more uh, of a recommendation type setting where negotiating uh, skills are displayed, but there's no real binding outcome or effect often in the, in the mediation setting. Right. So most of these issues are resolved in this process of arbitration. And, that, and again, it's a contractual agreement between the players' union and the leagues. And they frequently bring in uh, third-party arbitrators, although in the case of the NFL, the commissioner gets to serve as the arbitrator, which if everyone remembers in our discussions of Deflategate, which we can talk a little bit more about later, the challenge was that by definition, the commissioner of the NFL could not be an independent, objective arbiter of this arbitration by virtue of being the person who handed down the suspensions to begin with. Right, right. (laughs) Caught in a position of... uh of optical bias is what I'll call that one. (laughs) And then after after the break, we can talk about how that then, and then some of these others actually then transition from the internal mechanics of the rules, the procedures, the internal fines and suspensions, internal arbitration, and then it can spill out into traditional civil court. We can talk about that after the break. That's true. We'll do that. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio, and we're talking about fines in professional sports, and we'll pick back up with that discussion when we come back from this break, and a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. 
dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information... This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about fines in professional sports. And, of course, there is a legal connection to this because fines, after all, have to be based upon some kind of terms. Right, Mitch? So there are some contract issues involved, and we've talked about arbitration. Um, let's pick back up with the topic. Oh, and what you've pointed out at the first in the first session, Stephen, is there is a process. So the, the rules and regulations are set out. It's set out by contract, but then they're followed no differently than the rules and regulations of a civil trial. There has to be notice, just as you mentioned. First of all, there has to be notice of what the violations would be. There's a notice that they've been fined or suspended. There's an opportunity for the player to then respond. The, the player can respond individually. The player can also have their union respond on their behalf. And then that becomes a negotiation between the union and the, the league. And then it can go to an arbitration where there's a third party that can he- have what essentially is a mini trial, a private trial in which the two parties have lawyers and they present their arguments and there's an opportunity to negotiate and come up with a settlement. And the vast majority of the fines and suspensions are resolved that way. Uh, you might ask, Stephen, you, you mentioned during the break, you know, I wonder where does the money go when a player pays a fine? And, you know, it's interesting, each league sets their own rules for that as well. 
So, for example, the, the National Basketball Association has all of their money that's collected by fines go to charity. That's their choice. Uh, but the National Football League has their fines and also the National Hockey League both have their fines that go to assist players, either retired or <clears throat> injured players and their, and their families. So it's a, it's a fund, a trust fund that's used in that way. So a very different approach, but the, the money doesn't get kept by the owners or the league itself. Yeah, and that's an important point, Mitch. When I was doing some research on this, I looked back at the origin of fines and the issuance of fines, and there was uh, very clear rules of demarcation that set out that it would be uh, grossly inappropriate for the fines to go back into the ownership group. That's right. So let's talk a little about what happens to cause this to come out of this very sophisticated, very well represented, very well detailed private system to have it percolate out into the court. And and I find that somewhat fascinating. Uh, and let's talk about the, the pending case right now of Ezekiel Elliott. So the Ezekiel Elliott is a, a football player and the, he was suspended based on more general rules of, as you've talked about, conduct unbecoming or conduct damaging to the image of the league or the profession. And it it was not an on-field dispute. Uh, This is one of a number of cases in the the last couple of years where a player outside of their football behavior, in this case, an issue of domestic violence or domestic abuse, and the question is, and this has been an interesting legal question, of does, a, does the league have the right to, in this case I'll use loosely, police the behavior of players and or owners for non-sports related behavior? So, Stephen, that's how it bridges across this. Now, that's a much grayer area of under what circumstances are they allowed to then issue sports fines or suspensions, fines against your salary, fines against your ability to play and receive that salary for behavior that's happening or perhaps charges that come up under the civil or criminal side. Yeah, you know, Mitch, that's a fascinating issue when you start talking about conduct that takes place off the field, so to speak. Um, I think of some analogies more in the uh, government sector, perhaps, uh, or let's say, for instance, a sworn police officer mm-hmm. who engages in a, inappropriate conduct uh, while not on duty. Um, which is leading me to say this, I've said it before, are you really ever off duty? Because I think that might be one of the issues that we're going to discuss when we talk about Ezekiel Elliott and any professional member of a sports team who engages in conduct that's inappropriate off the field. Johnny Manziel would be another good example. That's right. So in, let's talk about Elliot because it's in the current news. And again, it's it's a pending case. We do not have inside information on this case. Uh, this is a case where after a year-long investigation under domestic violence accusations made by his former girlfriend, friend, 
the National Football League found that he violated its personal conduct policy. So that goes back to what we talked about before. These were uh, negotiated policies between the players' union and the owners. And this is a uh, a six-game suspension that he was originally given because the rules as negotiated were that you get a six-game suspension for a first-time domestic violence violation. And Ezekiel Elliott did not deny or challenge the original findings, but what he challenged was the process under which the football NFL investigated and applied the rules. So he really was using a due process argument, not a not an underlying question of whether or not they could find him for domestic violence or suspend him, but it was a due process check challenge. And he took that to civil court. So just like any other lawsuit, he sued the league under uh, for his uh, violate for a violation of their process. And the original judge issued a preliminary injunction to keep him from being suspended from games. Uh, the league appealed. It was reinstated, so he then was suspended. Then, before a game happened, an appellate panel again uh, held it in abeyance so that he could play. So, again, it's, it's gone on for this entire season. He's yet to miss a game, and yet it's working its way through the trial court, the appellate court, and then an appellate panel. Yeah, you know, Mitch, I'm glad that you raised the Elliott uh, example because it's a, a really good uh, case to showcase where the internal rules within the NFL and the code of conduct is now actually being challenged in a traditional court. And as you mentioned, it's a due process challenge. And that, in essence, is a claim that the formalities were not followed and that there was a gap or errors in the uh, distribution of the fines and the way things were handled internally. So it's a good example of where traditional courts can actually come in and uh, scrutinize the rules of engagement uh, within the NFL. And I find this one additionally interesting because it it's... It also brings up a question of public policy. And you and I have talked about that from time to time, about the rule of the courts in enforcing public policy. And because a lot, a lot of times law, although it's in the black and white statute, or in this case, it's in the black and white contractual agreement with the league and the Players Association, the, the question becomes the, the method of enforcement and sometimes the negotiation of the sus- suspension. And there's no doubt that in this case, the NFL has decided to make a public policy statement on the question of domestic violence and domestic abuse. And then the question from the Players League is, is that the NFL's role? Should that be their, their role? Should he miss half of a season because they want to make a public policy stand about a non-sports issue. And I'm not taking a side on one or the other. I'm just trying to outline the, the alignment here. And, and much of that 
is what ends up being litigated in this court case. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. And, you know, when I think about uh, general concepts of contract law within the backdrop of professional sports, I think of there being a formation component to a contract and then a performance component. So typically the formation side of the equation is a focus on whether or not the terms of the contract are accurately set out. So in other words, did the NFL or did the individual team accurately define what is and is not tolerated in terms of conduct? And then there's the performance component, which relates to whether or not the party under the obligation, which would be really any NFL player, um, has performed uh, according to the terms. And when you start thinking about outside conduct or conduct that happens off the field, it's a really interesting argument to me that uh, that off-the-field conduct can percolate into disturbing the general performance of an athlete. Because I think of things like what happens with the punishment in a domestic violence case. There's probation terms issued. Um, Can that person, uh, the defendant, perform adequately in a professional setting while also serving under probation. There's a host of issues going on there. And, and Mitch, we, we, we can't ignore the marketing aspect of all this, right? Because if you're an NFL owner, of course you want to wear the white hat. And no NFL owner wants to appear to be sort of condoning off-the-field misbehavior. I, I just think that's a really important issue. And I have to believe that that's part of the challenge of the Players Association that they're Def- making. Definitely. Is they're saying, we're not disagreeing. And in this case, you know, Elliot's not cha- challenging the findings of whether there was behavior that was unbecoming. But what he's challenging, I believe, is exactly what you're just saying, is that they're trying to make him into a public policy case with this, what he thinks is... Uh, far excessive assignment of punishment in order to make them look good. Whereas he might argue that whatever punishment he is due for whatever the underlying issues are happened and will happen through a traditional criminal and civil case. And that there's an entire outside policy that is set up to take care of those things. And if he's Regardless of the charges, if he's violated the criminal law, there's a criminal justice system that will assign that uh, blame and find whether there's guilt or not. And if there was injury, there's a civil justice system or a civil trial system that will allow monetary damages to be issued if there was damages. And so his argument is, why should I have to have all of that and then have the league make me into what what he has said is he doesn't want to get labeled as yep. an abuser at a far higher level on a marquee level than would happen in a traditional case. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that assessment, Mitch. And the other thing that I think we can also expand upon here is the fact that we are really talking about private sector scenarios here because um, I was about to introduce the idea of the First Amendment and free speech because I was I had a note about touchdown celebrations, right? Because right. <laughs> that, that's an yes. issue, right, in the NFL that's often been challenged, right? Um, excessive touchdown celebrations. But the, the constitutional safeguards, for instance, First Amendment rights, 
you know, they might not actually be triggered when we're talking full private sector. However, there could be a point of contention if there is any kind of evidence that there is a government actor. Well, I think and you're so-called right. We call it we 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 call that state state actor, state action, right? It's exactly right. Well, and I and I, let me just. I know we're getting right up on the edge of a break here, but when we come back, I'd like to talk a little about a, of do we even want to be using the public sector of criminal and or civil trials to try to resolve issues for these incredibly wealthy participants, professional sports players, professional team owners. There's a part of me, and I know it's kind of a throw an inflammatory thing out there, and then we go to break. There's a part of me that says, oh, come on, guys. You've got... You've got all of this negotiated by contract. You've all got lawyers up the wazoo. Don't clog up our courts. Don't clog up our courts. I don't really have a lot of sympathy for you in that standpoint. Okay, I'll play devil's advocate on that one. When we come back, we'll expand on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about fines and professional sports. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? 
And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are going to continue our discussion about fines in professional sports. And Mitch, before the break, I think we were getting into the topic that you so um, not so subtly raised, uh, court intervention, and whether or not the actual traditional courts should get involved at all. And I think you wanted to argue that uh, they probably shouldn't. Yeah, I have some problems with this. Uh, and let's go back. I don't want to. Oh, yes, I do. Let's beat up on Tom Brady and deflate gate a little more. You know, why not? It's a, such a good, juicy topic. But here you had the case, if people remember, back in the 2014 championship game or league championship game, where there was an allegation that Tom Brady had actually paid certain uh, staff people to deflate the footballs used in the game because allegedly it benefited him. It was a better feel. He liked the way they felt. It was a cold, it was cold weather and you know, he had a better grip and could perform better and that they would then be detrimental to the other team. Um, it went through an, a very extensive uh, league Review. They paid for an outside scientific study of the footballs on whether it could have happened naturally or had to be human intervention. There was the intrigue of a cell phone uh, that went missing from Tom Brady because the thought was that he had texted after the game one of the equipment managers to, to I think the allegation was that he might pay them if they kept quiet and the phone went missing. Anyway, it was, it was, it was a movie-like intrigue. There, there was dime novel intrigue galore. Yes, exactly. And then the league came down like a ton of bricks. Now, of course, it's Tom Brady, so he's very high profile anyway. And the, the league came down with like a ton of bricks. They find the team, I think it was a million dollars, and Brady, I think it was four-game suspension. And the whole thing then marched into court. And that's the point that I think I have a little problem with because this was not, you know, it's one thing if you're challenging issues related to domestic violence, and I can see where those are, it's behavior off the field, it's behavior outside of the rules of the game, and that that does have a place that might need to be resolved by a, a judge. Whether or not the football was inflated or deflated and whether the rules of the process were adequate, honestly, I think that should have stayed within the process of the league and shouldn't have been taking up my time as a taxpayer in the civil oh, courts. <laughs> okay, I knew you were going to play the taxpayer card 
Okay, so wait. Um, it sounds like you your position is that the infrastructure within the NFL or the arbitration or their own independent investigation wing, so to speak, should have been able to handle this without resort to the courts. Uh, that's exactly what that I going? Yeah, okay. So they don't like the fact that in that case, for example, that Roger Goodell as as commissioner is able to act as the arbitrator, then they should have negotiated that in the contract. I don't believe after the fact that should be the basis of taking this to court. Okay. So the terms, so the terms should have been uh, more precisely set out. I think that's right. Within the rules of engagement in the NFL. That's right. And, and to be honest, although it's a side issue, I, I have a little bit of a problem with people of uh, Tom Brady's stature and wealth that he needs to be represented by the players' union in order to fight this as if this is some type of a players' rights issue. Uh, that that kind of irritated me a little bit as well. But that that's probably not a legal issue. That's just by a person. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, Mitch, I, here, here's one. This one's, uh, I, I must confess, it's way out of my bailiwick, but in researching. I to say it was out of your league. Uh, you missed oh, the That was no. a perfect Wagnerism. See, no, no, I showed great restraint there. Gosh. <laughs> uh, tax consequences. I was thinking about, because you had raised the issue of where the fines go. Right. You know, when I was researching some of the issues, and I think you had pointed out, the NBA and the NFL's policy, there being uh, a charitable uh, target here where the funds go into some kind of a charity. Uh, one of the other issues that emerges is that uh, if a professional player is fined, um, I think the fine is a line item in his pay stub or paycheck. And there's payroll overtones and probably tax consequences also connected here. Okay. Well, I could see that. Crickets, right? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you're not getting a, a tear. There are no tears oh. rolling down my face on behalf of these poor multi-bazillionaire players. But oh, okay. No, no. I wasn't trying to engender you know, empathy or sympathy. I was just saying that um, there's got to be kind of a paper trail for these, these fines, right? Right. And, I mean, I'm looking at some of the Whopper fines that are issued in the NBA and, and the NFL specifically because those seem to be the highest. I guess NBA would be the highest, right? Yes. Generally or historically? Yes. Um, so those fines, don't they come out of the player's paycheck? They do. Yeah, okay. So there's going to be a line item. Can the player then claim uh, a charitable contribution on his taxes? I would hope not. Ooh, uh, uh, don't answer that question. Okay. Anyway, just raising that, not solving it necessarily. Uh, but what do you think? You, do you think that these things should spill over into the civil courts? Is that um, the place they should be? You know, I'm actually sort of torn a little bit. In, in having raised the issue of Ezekiel Elliott's case, when there's a challenge to the procedures involved, um, as long as all the remedies have been exhausted, you know, within the context of the contractual terms, 
I, I do think the courts uh, are the proper venue, but it's got to be last resort. And I think your point with respect to deflate gate, Mitch, might have been that that was a little bit too early to resort to the courts or that there might not have been a demonstrated need to go to the courts. In the case of Ezekiel Elliott, I think he's making legitimate claims about uh, the procedural processes. And I think that would be an example where the courts would uh, be the appropriate venue. Yeah. And, and I do say as though, although I've come you know, down hard in favor of, I think these should be administrative procedures. Uh, the, the one thing that is different in the professional sports setting than perhaps other civil trials is the immediacy of the penalty. So if an individual is held out from a game, you know, these suspensions are frequently issued to take effect immediately. So if there's an incident, they can frequently be held out of the next three games, for example. Or the next game. And I'm, yeah, let me throw one last thing in. We don't have a lot of time left on it. But the, the, the real question I, I had was, you know, we were watching one of the games recently. And a, the, a player went out and did something really dumb. There was no doubt they were going to get suspended for the next game. There's a high-profile player. There's a lot of money being spent now in fantasy leagues. And that behavior now has rolls out into the, the those who have fantasy football, in this case, leagues. So let me ask you this. Is there a cause of action for all of those people? <laughs> damaged? So, because so. that performer who's out there under contract to do things a certain way violated the terms of the contract. The fantasy football leagues have the right to expect them to comply with their behavior under the terms of the contract so they're not damaged. So, um, but for Mr. Running Back's bad behavior in a game, I would have stayed in the game because I played that player in my fantasy league. Yes. That's an interesting issue. <laughs> wow. You have a cause of action to sue the player for failure to, to perform under the terms of a third-party contract that you had reasonable expectation that they would comply with. Okay, so the fantasy player is not a party to the contract. So I would argue that they don't have standing. That would be my position right now, but I would want to reserve time to research the issue, and I'd be in the law library for at least 24 hours on that one, Mitch. (laughs) And you you probably have to take your laptop with you so you could watch the games so you didn't miss anything while you were doing the research. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's right. (laughs) Hey, you know, Mitch, in tennis, I don't know if you track fines in tennis, but it's interesting they are traditionally uh, much lower, you know, the fines. I'm thinking of Nick Kyrgios, the Australian player, right. um, who's prone to acting up quite a bit, and he was actually accused of tanking, uh, throwing matches, and unsportsmanlike, unsportsmanship. And Fabio Fognini is another um, example, pretty recent too, um, an Italian player. He's top 30, I think maybe 22, 24 in the world. He was fined in the U.S. Open. Uh, but those fines are really much, much lower than than the league fines. Yes, I think one of those two were the ones, weren't they also fined at Wimbledon this past year? Yeah, at Wimbledon they, also, yes, that's they, right. They get, you know, they get a little petulant, I think. They upset that the first round wasn't going well and 
they so they just threw the match because they get their standard first round pay and hit the road. Right. right. Yeah. And but the other thing that's interesting, Mitch, is that the they call it conduct contrary to the integrity of the game. That's one of the terms of art used. Conduct contrary to the integrity of the game, and that same kind of uh, rule statement or um, rubric, if you will, is also used in the league sports also. You know, there's this reference to conduct unbecoming, which really, to me, um, cries out for kind of a vagueness argument uh, in that it's subject to so many challenges. But uh, I'm we glad... We about tennis, because what, Maria Sharapova is just coming back off a suspension, right? She is, she which is. Will- and that's the other issue that has been uh, was a much bigger issue in prior years. I think it's not that it's not still an issue, but issue of ban use of banned substances. Yeah, the performing enhancing uh, drug issue, which is a unfortunate issue in a lot of different sports, both individual and team sports. Yeah, for sure. But you're right. In tennis, the players, although they've had very public disputes over some of those findings, they tend to take their fines, take their suspensions, and then move on. Yeah, they do. There, there's also governing bodies. You know, there's the International Tennis Federation and the Association of Tennis Players, as I mentioned earlier. So there's governing bodies, and there are also some bargaining units. It's a little bit more private sector, individual uh, representation rather than actually unit or group representation. But um, the other thing, Mitch, that we should mention is that there's a stigma associated with being fined also because of the suspension factor. You know, if you're suspend, if you're suspended, you're out of pocket for 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 games. And in the NFL, there's probably incentive clauses for a lot of players, right? That are built in. You uh, perform an x x number of starts, uh, and you get this uh, amount of money, or the incentive clauses. And if you um, engage in conduct that forces you off the field, there's another stigma associated with it. Well, and in the tennis, I have to say that the fines were relatively nominal, but in a number of those cases, the players lost uh, very valuable sponsorships. Oh, absolutely. And so that's probably the longer term. So, but my argument then would be the market is is setting its price, and and I like that free market. So, I don't think we resolved any of this, Stephen, but I did want to bring it up. I think it's been an interesting conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed it, and I think what it really shows is that even in the area of professional sports. And even on the private side of resolving these disputes, the concept of law that you've mentioned, equity, fairness, process, due process, notice, those things are just as much involved in those private settings and contractual negotiations and arbitration as they are out in the public setting as well. Absolutely, Mitch. Good show. Thanks, Stephen. As we remind you each week, you can hear an archive of today's program on the voiceamerica.com business channel on wagnerandwinnick.com. As we suggest to you each week at the end of each show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.